May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. I wonder if you have ever thought to yourself, why do I bother? Perhaps you're the teenager who's been really trying so very hard to keep on the right side of your parents, but all you seem to get back is criticism. And you think, why do I bother? Or you're the parent of that teenager who's been trying so very hard to shower your child with love and wise guidance and so on, and all you get back is the occasional grunt, and you think, why do I bother? Perhaps you're the student who's been trying very hard to improve grades, and you really bust a gut on the latest essay, and the Feedback from your marker is worse than ever, and the grade is lower than before. And you think, why do I bother? You're the teacher who is trying very hard to try everything you know. You've tried both your teaching methods on your class. You've tried the talk and chalk, and that didn't work, Uh, the conventional one. And so you go to the unconventional one, the shout and clout. No response. Why do I bother? Maybe you're the husband, the wife, the, 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 the boyfriend, the girlfriend, who seems to be putting everything into that relationship and getting so very little back. Why do I bother? Maybe you're the Christian who's been really trying your darndest for God. And where are all the blessings that you thought were promised to you? Why do I bother? Or maybe you're the, well, no, you're not God, are you? But God himself might well be thinking, why do I bother in Isaiah chapter 48? Would you turn with me back to that chapter? It's pages 734 and 735 in the Church Bibles, Isaiah 48. Why does God bother with these people? The prophet has been going on and on, upping the ante, really, on behalf of God about these dreadful people. Why does God bother with people who, verse 1, are so hypocritical? They are called by the name of Israel. They come from the line of Judah. They take oaths in the name of the Lord. They invoke the God of Israel. They're doing all the right things. They're putting on the show of worship and religion and righteousness, but look at the end, but not in truth or righteousness. It is just for show. It's merely hypocrisy. Why does God bother with people like that? Why does God bother, verse 4, with people who are so stubborn? I knew, says the Lord, how stubborn you were. The sinews of your neck were iron. Your forehead was bronzed. You just couldn't even begin to look in another direction. Any ideas or suggestions or pleas just bounced off your forehead. Why do I bother with people who are so stubborn? 
Why do I bother, the Lord might say, verse 8, with people who are so rebellious? It's not simply that they have ignored their God, but they have actually turned to false gods, dumb and lifeless idols. Well do I know how treacherous you are. You are called a rebel from birth because they've rebelled against God and followed false, dead, lifeless, dumb gods and idols. Why does God bother? And yet God does bother with these people. If you look on to verses 18 to 20, where the Lord is pleading with these same people, if only you had paid attention to my commands. The Old Testament scholar John, Go- uh, John Goldingay says, it's, a, it's an astonishing thing for a God to say, if only you had paid attention to my commands. Your peace would have been like a river, your righteousness like the waves of the sea. If only you had listened, things have been so very different. You could have had much better life. You'd be much happier and more settled and more fulfilled. If only you'd listened, but you didn't. But you can see that God does bother. And so in uh, verse 20, there is this plea, leave Babylon. You see this prophecy uh, in in these uh, middle chapters of Isaiah, a covering a period, speaking into a period about 150 years, very, very roughly, because I didn't check my dates before I came out, very, very roughly, but it's something like 700 to 550 BC. Is that roughly it? Uh, Very, very roughly. Beginning with the time when the southern two tribes of Judah were uh, becoming uh, spiritually and morally depraved, and so therefore uh, their, their country was... Was, was going to be overrun by the Babylonians. They're going to be carted off in exile to, to Babylon and there be in exile for many years. But towards the end of that period of time, uh, Babylon itself would be conquered by the Persian king Cyrus, who's, who has been named in earlier chapters, and he would grant an edict for God's people to return. And so there is this plea, this call, this summons in verse 20, um, summoning people in the future to leave Babylon, flee from the Babylonians. Why? Because God bothers. bothers. God wants to refine them, um, as he says in in, in an earlier verse, but not as silver. God does want to sort them out and refine them and bring them back to himself, and he wants to restore them to their land. Yes, indeed, God does bother about these people. But now, why does God bother? Why does God bother with such people who are so hypocritical and stubborn and rebellious? Why does God bother? Well, the default button that I think we would press if we said, why is God like that, would be, well, it's love, isn't it? In it. It's because God loves them uh, that that he's going to continue to be faithful towards them and bring them back out of exile and, uh, and redeem them and, and so on. And the answer of love would not be incorrect. There is uh, a classic passage in Deuteronomy chapter 7, which raises the question, why did the Lord uh, choose these people in the first place? 
Why did the Lord set his affection upon these people? Was it because they were more numerous than the other nations? No, they were actually the least numerous of all the nations. No, the Lord set his love upon them, uh, set his affection uh, upon them, because he loved them, because he loves them. Which, when you think about it, is a very strange thing to say about God. God is saying of his people, I love you because I love you. (laughs) Jim Reeves, the older people will remember anyway, used to sing, I love you, of his sweetheart, I love you for a hundred thousand reasons. And we could say that of our love for God. I love God for this reason and that reason. But God never explains why he loves his people. He never explains what he finds so attractive and so lovely in you. I love you, he says, because I love you. That's a great although impenetrable thought. So yes, God does bother because he loves his people. He loves you and cares about you um, and wants to put you right. But that isn't where this passage goes. This passage goes someplace else. God bothers, according to this chapter... If you look with me at verses 9 and 11, here is the reason why God bothers with these people. Verse 9, for my own name's sake, I delay, or uh, perhaps it's better, I restrain my wrath. For the sake of my praise, I hold it back from you so as not to cut you off. And then in verse 11, for my own sake, for my own sake, I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. There is a pride and an honor, a reputation for God to uphold. And he is concerned to do that. There is uh, an illustration of this in, uh, uh, in Exodus chapter 32, um, a story that could be told in such a way as to make it almost comical. So here goes. Moses is up the mountain receiving the law from the Lord, but the Lord knows that down at the bottom of the mountain, Aaron and the children of Israel are busy forgetting about the Lord and constructing a golden calf, an idol to worship. And the Lord says to Moses, I know exactly what they're doing, and I'm going to destroy them because of that. And Moses says to the Lord, you can't do that. What will the Egyptians say? The Egyptians think that you have redeemed us out of their country through the exodus um, across the Red Sea. And now if you destroy us, your reputation will be in ruins. And so the Lord sort of scratches his beard a bit and says, you know, you're right. I won't destroy them. Well, that's the, um, the, 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 uh, the, the, new, the NIV, the newly imagined version. But that's virtually what it says in that chapter. Look it up when you get home. Exodus chapter 32. But you see God, Moses is conversing with God about God's reputation, about his honour, about his name's sake. And the Lord is being reminded about that. 
and so relents and shows mercy rather than, uh, rather than judgment. Take a businesswoman of honesty and integrity. Malicious rumours are beginning to spread about her business dealings. She pinched all her best designs from a rival. She reneges on all her contracts. She treats her staff terribly. Malicious rumours being spread about um, about this businesswoman. Her customers begin to desert her. Even some of her friends begin to give her the cold shoulder. Will that businesswoman not act to restore her reputation and the reputation of the company that she has worked so hard to build up? Well, of course she will. And will, her not real, will not her real friends, her true friends, stick by her and stick up for her? Well, of course they will, if they are real friends who know what she's really like. Well, if a businesswoman and her friends would act in that kind of way about her honour and reputation and and her good name, how much more is it right for God to honour and protect his good name and for his faithful people to be interested in that as well? And so therefore he says, I do these things for my own name's sake. I will not yield my glory to another This, you know, is something of a driving force behind the ministry of Jesus himself. Do you remember the episode recorded in John chapter 2, where he went into the temple, where people were uh, were changing money and selling all kinds of things, and Jesus viewed that as a desecration, really, of of God's temple. And he overturns the, the tables of the money changers and so on. And afterwards, his disciples remembered the psalm that says... Um, zeal for the house of the Lord will consume me. So there's being eaten up by zeal for the Lord and his place and his things, which is a part of what is going on here and part of what drove Jesus, both in love, yes, and in justice too, uh, in his ministry. That's an episode from near the beginning of his public ministry. And then another episode from near the end, just a few days before uh, his crucifixion. So Jesus is facing death um, uh, in, in, in the face. And he becomes very distressed. And he's beginning to think and to pray, shall I ask my father to, to, to excuse me from this, from not, to, to, to not make me go through this? But he ends up praying to his father, Father, glorify your name. So driven by that concern that his father's name would be glorified and a voice came from heaven to reassure him, I have and I will glorify my name. You know, the watchword of the great Reformation was not simply Deo Gloria, to God be glory, but solely Deo Gloria, to God alone be glory. Because God says, my glory I will not yield to another. And then there's the famous first question of the 
Westminster Shorter Catechism, which you may well have heard of. The question asks, what is man's chief end? And the answer given is man's, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. God is concerned as we should be concerned for his glory, his name's sake, his honor, his reputation. So now let me see if I can just spell this out briefly in just a few practical applications, just a few bullet points, really. This, I think, has some impact on our assurance as Christians, our believing and trusting that we are truly sons and daughters, children of God, and that we are in Christ. Do we sometimes feel, going back to the question of love, do we sometimes feel unloved and unlovely? Well, here's something else that we can cling to when we're seeking that assurance of heart that we belong to God, which is that God's name is, especially the name of the Lord, which translates in English uh, his covenant name, Yahweh or Jehovah. That's his covenant name. Uh, When we appeal to that name, we are reminding ourselves he's a God who is faithful to his covenant. He has made promises that he will not break. And so therefore, when we are feeling unloved and unlovely, how could God possibly love me? We, as it were, pick up his promises, pick up his covenant, as it were, show God his own his own handwriting and say, you said that you would not leave me nor forsake me. Thank you, and I believe your word. The name of the Lord, says the proverb, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. Whether they feel safe or not, they are safe because of who God is. So that's a a little point about assurance. Now, secondly, a point about Christian unity. In John chapter 17, Jesus brings together the glory of the Father and the Son with the unity of Christian believers. Near the beginning of that prayer, he prays, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. So there again, he's concerned about his and his Father's glory, name, reputation, honor. But later on, in verse 21, he he prays that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. So you see, it is as we seek together the glory, the honor of God, all wills bowed in the same direction, all hearts burning with the same flame, all minds united by the same obedience, is as we do those things together and together seek God's glory that we will then know the unity for which Jesus prayed. That's a point about unity then. Now thirdly, a point about evangelism or outreach. What are our motives uh, when we seek to, uh, uh, to speak uh, and to win uh, those over who do not yet know Jesus Christ? Uh, Are we motivated by obedience to the Great Commission? Well, I hope we are. Are we motivated by concern for the destiny of the lost? I hope we are. But are we motivated, too, by a longing for God's name to be honoured in our homes, in our schools, colleges and universities, in our workplaces and in our neighbourhoods? 
There's a remarkable expression in the fifth chapter of Acts when the disciples have been witnessing to the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin. And they've been really been given a hard time, but they went away rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. The name sums up the work of God in Christ as we have it in the gospel. They honoured his name, and even though persecuted and suffered disgrace for it, they rejoiced. So a comment there about evangelism. And fourthly and lovely, a co- uh, uh, fourthly and, and lastly, uh, a comment about love. Um, here I uh, re- go back to um, some, uh, a, a writing of, of dear old Bishop Ryle. John Charles Ryle was a minister in Suffolk uh, for, in the middle years of the uh, 19th uh, century. Uh, he became the first bishop of Liverpool, and died actually in Lowestoft in the year uh, 1900. From his celebrated book, um, Holiness, uh, Bishop Ryle has this to say about love. If we love a person, we are jealous about his name and honour. We do not like to hear him spoken about without speaking up for him and defending him. We feel bound to maintain his interests and his reputation. We regard the person who treats him ill with almost as much disfavour as if he had ill-treated us. Well, it is just so between the true Christian and Christ. The true Christian regards with godly jealousy all efforts to disparage his master's word or name or church. He will confess him before princes, if need be, and be sensitive of the least dishonour put upon him. He will not hold his peace and suffer his master's cause to be put to shame without testifying against it. And why is all this? Simply because he loves him. Well, does, does that describe, at least in part, your attitude to your love and expression of your love for your God and Saviour? We have now reached a turning point in this section of Isaiah as I read it. The prophet has now put all his cards on the table. There will be no more arguments between the Lord and his people. No more assertions now uh, that he, over against all the idols, is the one true and living God. No more talk of Babylonian exile or the degree of Cyrus to bring God's people back home. We will now see how much the Lord bothers about his wayward people what lengths he will go to uphold his good name, how resolutely he will defend his reputation as a faithful God, how determined he is to fulfill all his promises to his covenant people. We will watch with bated breath as as this mysterious character, the servant of the Lord, emerges from the shadows and begins to take on shape and purpose and personality. That's for another time. For the moment, let us pray. God, you are great. You are glorious. You are gracious. Teach us what it means to live lives in our individual walk with you and in our daily lives this coming week. What it means together as the gathered people of God to honour your name, 
to seek to defend and own your cause and to live lives that are pleasing in your sight, no matter how we might be misunderstood or even ridiculed or despised by others. May your glory be our prime aim. Amen.